everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And how was this? Episode 296, I believe. Just thought I'd shake up the intro there. That's actually um, Zuzu Fang's cover of The Cure's Fascination Street off of the tribute album Perfect as Cats. I know I'm not supposed to be playing copyrighted music, but I figure if I do, the least I can do is give the artist some credit. So that's Zuzu Fang, not Pazuzu Fang, which would also be an awesome band name. Anyway, before we start, I'd like to kind of give a shout out. I noticed on the Weekend Out Patreon page that a couple of people actually edited their pledges and raised the amount. Uh, Usually I wouldn't hesitate to give a person a Patreon shout-out by name, but I don't know if people necessarily want me to get into how much they're giving or whatever. Um, But I did notice that, and thanks guys, it is greatly appreciated. And speaking of Patreon, I recently released another episode of the so-called Not-So-Secret Show, the bonus show that's uh, for Patreon supporters only. Once in a while I might give everyone a kind of, you know, a free preview or whatever, but for the most part, that's content that's only for Patreon supporters. And in the most recent episode, let's see, what do I go over? I kind of give my thoughts on realizing that I've been doing this show since 2012, and I can't believe how quickly time has gone by. I also discuss a, a very strange dream I had regarding the podcast. And what else was there? Oh yeah, I also talk about dieting. I know, kind of a strange topic. Not in general, but for me to be talking about whether it be on the main show or the bonus show. I've never been super, super heavy, you know? But I went into how, you know, back when I was in my teens and for most of my 20s, I had a pretty slender build. Then maybe around my late 20s, I started putting on the pounds And uh, you guys know how I've been on antidepressants for uh, years and years now for my migraines and, yes, also for uh, depression, uh, but primarily for uh, the migraines. It's a serotonin thing. Um, But anyway, and uh, when I had my last physical, my doctor noticed that I put on a little more weight over the past year, and she thought it may have had something to do with... um, upping the dose of my uh, antidepressant because my migraines have been kind of of cutting through the antidepressant and uh, they thought I was building a tolerance so they jacked up the dosage. And I guess antidepressants are kind of notorious for putting weight on people for some reason. Uh, Probably depends on the specific antidepressant or whatever. But yeah, so what was it? A couple years ago, I probably got up to like 230 something. Got down to about 200, started getting back up to around two, around 208 or 210. Then uh, I think within this past month, I got myself down to like, actually this morning, I was 193. And I'm going to try to get down to at least 180, but maybe in the 170s. I think according to the body mass index, and I went into a discussion of how, you know, The BMI isn't necessarily perfect. It doesn't take into consideration differences in muscle mass between individuals, etc. But I I think it is a good kind of rough 
uh, it does give you a good kind of rough idea about where you should be. And on the buy mass index, someone uh, my height should be around uh, 170 or 174 or something. So, eh, fingers crossed, we'll see how it goes. As a skeptic, am I allowed to say fingers crossed? Figure of speech, people. Anyway. Okay, so if you haven't noticed already, this is going to be one of those unscripted episodes. And I'll probably just riff on some news stories or whatever. Okay, so firstly, I just wanted to quickly talk about some off-topic stories that kind of caught my interest. So firstly, I wanted to talk about the Alex Jones situation. And you've probably all heard about this unless you're living in a cave in Fallujah or something. Um... Conspiracy theorist and talk show host, uh, radio show host, Alex Jones, got banned across a number of platforms within a small window of time. A number of these big platforms all around the same time decided to ditch him. Apple pulled his podcast from the, uh, from the iTunes store. YouTube pulled the plug on him. And I think Alex Jones had a number of YouTube channels, so I don't know if every channel affiliated with him also got the plug pulled or what, um, but at least his main channels, I think, got shut down. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Facebook shut him down too, and Twitter at first actually refrained from uh, kind of dogpiling and terminating his account. But I think the head of Twitter... Is it Jack Dorsey? Is that his name? Came forward and said they were giving Alex Jones a quote-unquote timeout. That they're not necessarily permanently kicking him off the platform, but giving him a timeout like a, uh, like a disruptive toddler or something. And so I definitely have mixed feelings about this whole thing. Uh, and there's so many different angles to, you know, approach it from. And I'll probably save the uh, the free speech angle for last and just kind of offer up my personal feelings about this to start. Now, you would think that as a skeptic, as someone who really values critical thinking, um, empirical <laughs> evidence, uh, facts, you know, <laughs> that I should be jumping for joy that Alex Jones, you know, um, got deplatformed or whatever, and uh, not as many people are going to be able to easily access his daily torrent of bullshit or whatever. But I, on a personal level, uh, on a selfish level, I was actually kind of saddened by the whole thing because Alex Jones has provided me with so much joy. Because I just love weird, lurid shit. You know, even though I don't believe in conspiracy theories, I've actually tried to debunk certain conspiracy theories um, on this on the show. J just as entertainment, I love watching people like David Icke, love watching <laughs> Infowars, and... Uh, I don't know what it is. By just, Alex Jones doesn't really talk about the the reptilians or the lizard people. That's uh, that's David Icke's thing. But obviously, uh, Alex Jones talks about all sorts of crazy conspiracy stuff, and just the lurid subject matter, his 
over the top demeanor. I mean, the guy is like a one man show. He's just fantastic to watch. And I'm also a big Joe Rogan fan, so there's kind of a crossover element there because in real life, Alex Jones and Joe Rogan are actually friends. I don't know how friendly they are at the moment because Alex Jones went on this kind of tirade uh, where he's kind of chiding Joe Rogan. Um, and uh, Joe Rogan has been kind of outspoken regarding uh, some of the really kind of over-the-line stuff with Alex Jones, like his claims about the Sandy Hook massacre being faked and, uh, you know, involving crisis actors, etc. And I found that stuff really distasteful, too. And I kind of stand with Joe Rogan on that. I mean, we're talking about dead kids. We're talking about small children being massacred. And the idea of parents, grieving parents, having to hear about this guy, you know, telling the world that your dead child isn't really dead and the whole thing was a hoax and maybe even you're some kind of crisis actor. And I think there was even people who were kind of like hounding some of the uh, the Sandy Hook victims' parents. Just really awful, atrocious stuff. And that's uh, one of those instances where I wish I could kind of crawl inside Alex Jones' head and, and see what he really thinks. Um, I have no doubt that he really believes some of this stuff, because if you look at the way he got started, uh, I mean, I used to like to watch those old documentaries he made, like there's the one where he kind of infiltrates bohemian grove and that's one of those conspiracy things where there actually is some truth to it it might not necessarily be what's what conspiracy theorists suggest but still you do have a bunch of powerful people gathering together and performing these weird rituals and plays and doing some really weird stuff you know and uh, in fairness to Alex Jones, he did help show people what really goes on in that place, you know. And um, so I think this is a guy that's long been sincerely interested in conspiracy theories and, and probably does believe a good deal of this stuff. But how much of it is him hamming it up for the camera, for the audience? And, um, you know, how far, how fringe do his beliefs at the end of the day actually go? Does he really believe that Sandy Hook was a hoax or does even he know better, but he knew it would be good for ratings and it would be red meat for his conspiracy theorist listeners, you know, to, to say that it's a, a hoax or whatever. And honestly, I don't know. And I have to say, and I know I'll probably catch, uh, flack from some listeners for saying this, but I actually find something kind of strangely likable or endearing about Alex Jones. And I know that will probably sound weird because for most people who aren't too familiar with him, you're only seeing the clips where he's like ripping his shirt off or, you know, he's red face screaming or whatever. Um, and usually when people espouse 
beliefs that are kind of, you know, diametrically opposed to my own when they're, you know, fundamentalist Christian pastors talking about killing gays or whatever it is, you know, these are usually people that are very easy to dislike, these kind of crotchety old bigots or whatever. But, um... I think there is almost something that's really kind of fun and entertaining and zany about Alex Jones. Like, I can see why Joe Rogan likes him. And he seems like the type of crazy guy that, yeah, I'd, I'd go out and do some shots with <laughs> with Alex Jones, you know? And I think there's a lot of other people out there who, you know, a lot of other skeptics, etc., who feel the same way who really, you know, don't believe a goddamn thing that comes out of his mouth, but just find him really entertaining to watch. I think even Kyle Kalinske was saying the same thing. But if we get serious and ask, okay, um, is he doing any real harm? And I would say that in a way he certainly is. Um, even if in his, once again, I don't know how much he really believes in the stuff he spews, but even if he doesn't, inside his own head, literally believe that Sandy Hook was a hoax, he's saying this stuff on the air, and even though there's a lot of us out there who know not to take the guy seriously, as scary as it is, there's a lot of people out there who do take him seriously, and I think there have been cases of unbalanced people who have gone out all, you know, hopped up on uh, Alex Jones's conspiracy Kool-Aid. And, uh, like, for instance, wasn't there one guy, I think this involves that whole quote-unquote Pizzagate thing, I think didn't one guy actually go to that Comet Ping Pong pizza or whatever the heck it is and uh, pull a gun or something like that? So I think he is irresponsible and potentially, you know, dangerous in that sense, uh, where he can actually end up fueling these unstable individuals out there. And then there's also the matter of his supplements. I guess a large portion of his income actually comes from selling or hawking supplements. And to be honest, I don't know that much about the safety or whatever or uh, efficacy of the supplements that he sells. I think uh, YouTuber Jeff Holliday has done a bunch of episodes on Alex Jones and his uh, supplements, and he tries to sort out which ones may actually be somewhat beneficial and which ones may be potentially harmful, uh, but there's all that, too. And so as far as the freedom of speech thing goes... Uh, I mean, I can't really bring any new insights or anything to the table. I know a lot of people have been butting heads over whether or not social media platforms like Facebook, YouTube, Twitter should kind of be regulated to ensure freedom of speech, that social media is such a staple of modern communication, something that we all use, that maybe it should be treated like a public utility, like uh, the, the telephone or something like that. Other people say, no, you know, these are private companies. You're choosing to use their platforms. And if you don't like their 
rules or terms of service or whatever uh, too bad or hey you know they reserve the right to uh, to shut down an account if they want and then I think others who see the internet as this kind of lawless wild west think that maybe you know social media should be regulated the way that uh, terrestrial radio and TV are etc. But I personally don't know about that. Do you want to give the FCC even more power and open the door for them to uh, come on into um, the internet and start regulating all that too? There is the Communications Act, which is meant to prohibit the FCC from unfairly censoring people or impeding um, freedom of speech. But then again, uh, I used to listen to Howard Stern a lot way back in the day, and wasn't he always getting fined by the FCC? But I do have to say, uh, yeah, even though I disagree with the lion's share of what Alex Jones has to say, I, I think there was something a little chilling about waking up and hearing about all these big platforms at the same time just shutting down this one individual, you know? Uh, it almost it felt kind of orchestrated or something. Um, or it may have just been, you know, one following the lead of the other uh, without any communicating or conspiring or whatever, you know? And as some have pointed out, kind of bringing the hammer down on Alex Jones could actually backfire in a way, and it kind of feeds his narrative. Because um, now he can actually say, look, you know... Uh, the powers that be really are trying to silence me, you know what I mean? And I think, uh, what was it? Somehow, I mean, Apple actually let him keep his app on the App Store, and there was a huge boom in sales and downloads of that app following this kind of mass banning of Alex Jones and ended up being one of the uh, the best-selling apps on the App Store or something like that. So I'm looking now, yeah, and it, as we speak, at this time it's still available on the App Store. 14.2 thousand ratings, uh, five stars. It looks like it's actually free. I mentioned sales. I probably should have just stuck with or just said downloads. I don't know if there's any in-app purchases or whatever. But whether or not he makes money off of the app, I mean, um, it still gives him a, a platform, you know. And, and like I said, in the wake of this mass banning, the downloads of this uh, thing shot up. Okay, I can't believe I spent about 18 minutes on that uh, Alex Jones topic. So I might make this the last story, and this is also an off-topic story. And uh, how do I even broach this one? So this is a story that really grabbed my attention. And it's strange because on the one hand, it's a very kind of morbid and disturbing story. But on the other hand... It's a very positive and kind of uplifting one. Very, very strange. But it's the story of a young woman who... Actually, the youngest person ever to receive a face transplant. So I'm not going to read from the actual article like I usually would. 
And I might not even mention, you know, I might refrain from mentioning the, the young woman's name. I'm just going to give my thoughts on it. Uh, I read this whole article from National Geographic, and I actually found out about it because uh, I think the Apple News app notified me about a National Geographic story. I'm like, oh, okay, what's this? I'm like, whoa, <laughs> holy shit. Um, and I'm looking, I think they also have like a little video story too on National Geographic's uh, official site. Yeah, there's there's a, a, a video here. And then the main article is entitled How a Transplanted Face Transformed a Young Woman's Life. I don't know. I mean, I guess if National Geographic is stating, you know, her name in their articles and videos, then uh, I, I guess it's all right for me to as well. I, I don't know. For some reason, I kind of felt like it might be in bad form. I don't know why. But her name's Katie Stubblefield. And she was 18 years old when she lost her face. Um, and she's 21 now. And so if you're like me, maybe the first thing you're wondering is, well, what happened to her face? She didn't lose it behind the dresser or something. You know, what what happened to her face? And it wasn't until near the end of the article that they uh, actually get around to it. And it's pretty disturbing. So she was this young high school kid just graduating, I believe. And I guess a lot of stuff was going wrong in her life. Uh... Just like drama, conflicts, I, I think uh, her boyfriend broke up with her. Uh, there was other stuff going on. Um, and then she had uh, some fairly serious medical issues, which I think she did survive and get through. But she had some medical stuff she was dealing with, too. And she ended up putting a gun under her chin and pulling the trigger. I forget if it was a... Uh, I think it was a shotgun, I think. I, I knew it was either a shotgun or a rifle. It says uh, .308 caliber hunting rifle below her chin and pulled the trigger. And it, I believe it was her brother's rifle. Robert kicked in the locked door. He found his little sister covered in blood. And quote-unquote her face was gone. He recalled, still shaken by the memory. And so automatically, you know, you just feel like, oh, what, why, why did you do that to yourself? And you can't, I mean, what's done is done. You can't go back in time and stop her, you know, but it's just uh, horrible. And uh, I'm not trying to make light of it at all. This is, you know, a very serious story. I can't even imagine what this girl and her family have been through. But for some reason, I thought of... Uh, I'm a fan of the show and the graphic novel Preacher, and it made me think of Eugene or whatever. And I remember there was a story like this. I, think I was just a little kid at the time. Uh, and it was during that kind of satanic panic, backwards masking mania, whatever. I think there was a couple of teenagers who tried to commit suicide while listening to Judas Priest, supposedly, and, you know, the Christian right and everything tried to blame Judas Priest and make accusations about backwards masking, etc. But I think at least one of the kids survived. Was it one or two? I don't know. <laughs> Completely unscripted and off the cuff here. And I remember seeing the image as a kid. It was really disturbing. Basically, blew his face off, but survived. And, uh... 
this is another one of those moments where I'm going to try not to sound like ignorant or sexist or whatever, where uh, or make it sound like somehow attractive people are more valuable. You know, because whenever like a young, per a young pretty person dies or whatever, uh, we always go, oh, such a waste. What a what a beautiful girl or whatever, as if if, if she had been average or or uh, not as easy on the eyes or whatever, you know, it, it wouldn't as be as it wouldn't be as big of a loss. You know what I mean? But we do seem to have that kind of tendency when when it's a, a very aesthetically pleasing, a very attractive person. We talk about it, you know, what a waste, such a beautiful person, you know, Um I think it goes to, well, I think unfairly in this society, we do place an undue amount of value on appearance and looks. And we know there's a lot more of the people than that. And we know people who aren't necessarily, necessarily beautiful or attractive in some classic sense are still important and still can contribute a great amount to society in that, in fact, when you think about it, it's probably, you know, it's probably a small percentage of people that are like drop dead model gorgeous. You know, most of us out there are probably, you know, average or whatever, you know. Um, and, and I think part of it has to do, it's probably partly like an evolutionary thing, too, where we're wired to be attracted to beauty, to facial symmetry to a, a young, youthful appearance. Um, it has to do with our our drive to want to procreate and uh, procreate with a, not to sound cold, but this is pretty much the way it is, with a, with a fit, healthy mate who is going to help perpetuate the species in the, in the gene pool or whatever, you know? So I think part of it probably is kind of evolutionary. We're wired to, to, to value beauty. And I think that can have these very kind of ugly, no pun intended, and unfair repercussions, uh, socially speaking, where I think everyone has a kind of inherent value just in the fact that they're a living, sentient being, that they're human. Um, but yeah, we do place a lot of value on beauty. And I didn't mean to kind of go off on that tangent or whatever but the reason why I'm uh, why I'm saying this is because this young girl was really beautiful this is a really attractive young girl she almost looks like Taylor Swift and uh what she looked like after she shot herself if you've ever seen those the really graphic images of the woman who was almost killed by Travis the chimp. Remember the woman who had like her face clawed off, clawed and bitten off, had her fingers bitten off. Um, it's because chimpanzees in the wild can be extremely brutal and they target specific areas of their rivals or their enemies. They're wired to go after the face and the extremities. And that's what this chimp did to this poor woman who was trying to help her neighbor or friend get her pet chimpanzee out of a tree just basically horrendous just a face totally unmade not to sound harsh but a face that can barely any longer be called a face um and so it just seems like some 
cruel joke when you look at the juxtaposition of this girl's face before and her face afterwards. And then the transplanted face came from, uh, I believe, the the quote-unquote donor uh, was a 31-year-old woman who had passed away. And what I was thinking to myself, because there's a side-by-side of the girl before she lost her face and of the donor, this 31-year-old woman before she passed away, and very drastically different people, different-looking people. Um, the, the girl who lost her face looks almost, like I said, she looks like Taylor Swift, this very pale-skinned, very small little, you know, dainty features. And the donor looked like she might be kind of Mediterranean. Her facial features are a little stronger, not quite as dainty as the as the other girl, you know. And it's just weird thinking about how much of our perception of a person is wrapped up in their face, um, rightly or wrongly or whatever. And how... And there's afterwards photos of, you know, post-transplant. And so she now has a completely different face. And you can see her family standing around with her, you know, staying around her bedside, supporting her. And thinking that, well, the face she has now isn't genetically this family's face. You know what I mean? It's just weird. This is a completely different person's face. And it's like, yeah, it is better than what she was left with after this self-inflicted injury or whatever. But at the same time, you know, this is still a field of medical science that's still being pioneered. And if you've seen other examples of face transplant stories, the face never quite looks exactly like the face of the donor, you know what I mean? Because you're basically, you're taking someone's face and trying to put it, graft it onto a recipient's body. And like I said, this is technology that's still being pioneered. So it ain't exactly perfect. So something still looks kind of off. There's kind of like an uncanny valley thing going on. And so on the one hand, I'm saying like, yeah, this is a very kind of morbid and disturbing story. But on the other hand, I think this is very exciting medical science. And it's mind boggling. You know, it's so impressive that they're even capable of medically transplanting a human face, something that at one time would have thought to have been pure science fiction. And also, even if it's not her face, I'm sure her her face by birth, I'm sure that her and her family are very grateful for this. And that the fact that she has at least a, a face now again is going to be a, a very positive and transformational thing for her and her family. But I wonder if psychologically, if uh, for her family looking at her, if this is something they're really going to have to try to get used to or wrap their their mind around, because, you know, this this is not the face of the girl they raised or grew up with. It's the face of a deceased donor who looks very unlike 
the daughter that they knew. Uh, so once again, I, I do think it's a positive thing, and I think this is amazing medical technology or, or science, but yeah, very odd and very kind of uncanny and bizarre at the same time. And if you're still sticking with me, you know, if you're not too disturbed yet, um, there's actually photos, and I don't know if I'll try to get away with showing this on YouTube, uh, once again, kind of ghoulish and disturbing, but at the same time, kind of, uh, when you think about what they're doing for the patient and how groundbreaking, you know, this tech, this, this technology, this medical science is, um, it's a positive thing and kind of an awe-inspiring thing, but there's graphic images or at least one image and they describe it in the article, and but this is my words, you know. It's basically the donor's face just sitting on a little medical table or a little medical trolley or whatever it is. And it almost looks like a Halloween mask. It looks like, uh, it almost looks like something from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, le 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 like uh, Leatherface would wear or something. Um... It's just, it's a human face sitting on a table on some kind of sterile cloth or something, you know? And as the author of the article described it, it almost looks like the mouth is saying, oh, in the eyes. There's no eyes, so it looks like a mask. Look like they're just staring out blankly. And I imagine there must be supportive bone in there, too. So they're not just grafting the face as in the skin. They're grafting on bone as well uh, because the self-inflicted gunshot wound, I mean, it, it just it destroyed this young woman's face. Um, yeah, but underneath the picture, it says 16 hours into a transplant operation at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, surgeons finished the intricate task of removing the face from an organ donor. Awed by the sight and by the gravity of their work, the team falls suddenly silent as staff members document the face in between its two lives. The surgeons would spend 15 more hours attaching the face to Katie Stubblefield. Yeah, so just to warn you, I may include the picture in the YouTube version, so you may want to avoid this particular YouTube version if you're kind of uh, queasy or easily disturbed. Yeah, and so I don't know if this doctor is actually uh, religious or not, but he's a veteran plastic surgeon, and it says uh, above the photo, looking down at the face he carries, is it Papay, P-A-P-A-Y, feels a kind of reverence. It's an amazing thing, he thinks, what some people will do for others, to give them a heart or a liver, even a face. He says a silent prayer of thanks and takes the face to its next life. And so obviously the surgery was successful, you know, because there's afterwards images of the girl with her new face. And one thing I'm thinking, I know with any kind of transplant, there can be a risk of rejection. Sometimes patients will have to stay on anti-rejection medications for the rest of their lives sometimes, I believe. So I'm wondering what the case is with a face transplant. I wonder what the risk of rejection is. I don't know, but it's just crazy. So a kind of rare story in the sense that it's both disturbing and inspiring at the same time. And it 
had me thinking about how wonderfully ghoulish, you know, medical science is sometimes. We, we, we have this image of a, of a human face sitting on a table, which is one of the most ghoulish things you can think of. And yet it's for a very positive purpose. But yeah, but on that heavy note, man, I guess I'll call it a wrap before editing. This episode's almost 40 minutes long. So uh, th- you, may, you may not want to uh, donate or help me out after, <laughs> after being subjected to that story and the, the grisly details. But you know the drill. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. If you want to help the show out monetarily, um, you can do so by using the PayPal widget, the bottom of the Podbean page. There's all that alliteration. Or by becoming a Patreon supporter, going to patreon.com slash theweekendout and helping this show out for as little as 99 cents a month. And that gives you access to the not-so-secret show and other uh, bonus content, um, my readings of certain H.P. Lovecraft stories and stuff like that. All right, brothers and sisters, uh, hopefully things will be a little lighter next week. Uh, Until then, thanks. (laughs) 